Hey everyone, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. Today on the show we have Peter Jesperson, a music lifer from my hometown of Minneapolis, uh, as a guest. Peter has seen a lot of things, a massive amount of rock, great rock and roll. Um, he just wrote and published a memoir called Euphoric Recall. A half century as music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker. The title says it all. I love how he puts fan right up front. Um, it's an amazing book. If you love rock and roll, you will flip out for this book. If you have an interest in Minneapolis rock and roll, you'll especially go nuts. Peter's done a lot of cool things, had a hand in some very important rock moments, from working at the Guthrie Theater to DJing at the legendary Longhorn Club, to starting Twin Tone Records, tour managing REM, and of course, really discovering the replacements and managing them uh, from day one, pretty much. It's all in the book. It's all in our conversation, which is great. I want to mention up front that I'll be joining Peter and Tommy Stinson and David Frick at a book event for the book on December 6th at Rough Trade, New York. I'll tell you more about that after we have this amazing conversation with Starts Like This. Peter Jesperson, thank you so much for joining us on That's How I Remember It. I start all of these podcasts with asking the guests the same exact question, and that question is this. Do you consider yourself someone who has a good memory? I have a very good memory in some areas, and you know, I've I've forgotten everything in others. I mean, it's spotty. I'm going to be seventy in February, so you know, this is a time when memory fades a little bit. Yeah. Do you qualify it at all? Or are there things that you're good at remembering? Well, I remember a thing. You know, uh, like everything in my life, everything is kind of dated about when certain records came out or what I was listening to. So that's the way. I mean, I remember almost everything that way. That's. I was wondering if you'd say that. And how about how about shows? It seems like when you when I'm reading the the book you just wrote, you you remember shows really well. But was there tour diaries or anything you were going back to? I mean, there were. I did try to keep a journal. Um, I I I. I was inspired by some friends. Duncan Hanna, mm-hmm. in particular, um, was a good friend in high school, and he wrote, you know, obviously the, you know, kept a journal um, pretty uh, meticulously. And I, tr- I think that was my big inspiration. And I tried to do it, but most of what I've written, I have hidden away, and I, I think I might even destroy it so my son never reads it because <laughs> some of it was just that, you know, I grew up in that era when. Um, you know, we thought we were really changing the world and we were some kind of, you know, advanced minds or something, you know, because of our enlightenment and all that stuff. So a lot of the writing was just full of pretentious bullshit. But that seems evergreen. I mean, I think that's 17, no matter when you hit 17, probably, right? Well, maybe a little more, though, for us, you know, with the, you know, the 60s sure. and, and, you know, the whole you know, the whole the youth culture that took over in, in that period. So I, I think we had it a little different than a lot. Uh, a lot of 17-year-olds, but, you know, I think you're right to some degree. I've asked everyone about their early memories of music, but it's right there in their book. You talk about hearing the Everly Brothers on the radio and that kind of, that being a moment, right? Oh, well, the radio was what, it, I mean, that's like so different from today. You know, the radio was was everything then, you know, when I was growing up. What was the radio station? Uh, well, there were two in Minneapolis, KDWB and WDGY were the competing stations. They were both top 40 and they were highly competitive, and you really—I didn't ever have a preference one over the other, except that in the later '60s, uh, Tony Glover did a late-night show on KDWB, so he was 
you know, he and Duncan Hannah really were my first uh, real serious musical mentors. And so I probably had a little partiality to uh, KDWB, but both of those stations were just fantastic. And, you know, I had the vision of like a a guy, you know, like my picture in my mind as a kid was a, a guy in a room you know, with records stacked floor to ceiling. And he was the one that went through it all and decided what to play for me. And, uh, you know, so that really was, you know, very inspiring in my, you know, little naive vision of what the, what those people did. And some of them, I think, really did study it and, and were very uh, conscientious about it. Others, I think, were, you know, maybe not as musically inclined and, and would maybe be towing the, uh, you know, billboard chart line a little bit more than, you know, listening with their ears and making decisions. Do you, yeah, I mean, I wonder if, I mean, they probably were at some point making more decisions that weren't dictated by up top. Do you remember any, were there ever, was like, would they play any local music on a station like that? Well, they did, you know, I mean, they certainly played, you know, the groups that were on Big Hits in America, Volumes 1 and 2, and, and the Trashmen and things like that. Uh, so, but, but local music was really not represented, certainly not on those AM stations when it started to get into, you know, KQRS being the dominant FM station when FM, you know, album rock came in. Um, you know, <laughs> KQ used to pretend to support local music, but it was like one of those things where they tried to bridge the the scenes of like the cover bands and the original bands and, you know, never the twain shall meet in that respect. So... I was going to bring that up because, you know, before I discovered punk rock or anything, I was I was a KQ guy, a KQ kid. And uh, my concept of local music was the Upper Mississippi Shakedown by Lamont Cranston Band. That was the only the only local song. And I knew and, I, you know, when I think back. That's that's probably the only local song they played. And that's probably the only song that differed from classic rock around the country. Yeah. And I think that we felt like uh, when when the Longhorn years came in in 77, uh, and, you know, through the end of that decade, you know, we, we, the Longhorn used to buy radio ads. And I felt like, you know, we were doing 30 second ads and 60 second ads. And and I felt like it was like we were paying to get little snippets of our favorite bands on the radio. <laughs> of course, a lot of local, you know, Flamingo and, you know, mm-hmm. Kurt and the Commandos and stuff, but also, you know, the national acts that were coming through. And 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 I used to do all the radio ads. And I remember I, I actually used to ride my bike out to uh, I didn't have a car. I'd ride my bike out to the KQ studios on Highway 100 there in mm-hmm. Golden Valley. And uh, they just never were happy to see me coming, <laughs> the production guy. And I'd be like bringing, you know, oh, the band we got to plug this week is Perubu, you know. So <laughs> I'd like make him do tape loops of like smashing plates and things. And he was like, oh, God. So that was funny. What was the first music that like was was yours and all yours? I mean, like like was it would like when you got into like maybe your early teen years? Was there something that your parents just couldn't get or or just seemed like a kid's thing? I always um, I had that kind of um, uh, I always had respect for my elders. I guess I liked the music that I heard before even rock and roll came in. So I didn't, you know, I, there certainly was. You know, in those days, what they called the generation gap, my parents really had no idea what was going on in my head, you know, which is much different than say, you know, I've got a 21 year old kid and, and we're we're very alike, you know. Mm-hmm. So the music that I first heard, you know, I love the Sinatra stuff. I love the Bing Crosby stuff and and some of those other, you know, I didn't I didn't really go for Perry Como or some of that stuff, but I liked a lot of what I heard. And then um, I suppose my older brother playing the folk music, you know, drew me in a little bit. But the, I, I mean, I suppose like millions and millions of other people the first music that really felt like mine was hearing the beatles and 
January of 64. And I was like, you know, that was that just lit me up and, and I have never gotten over it. In the book, you talk about buying the Beatles, uh, Meet the Beatles at Knollwood Mall, which is a place I spent a lot of time at. As a youth as well, um, there was a there was a kind of a medium cool record store there called Music 2 when I was in the 80s when I was growing up. But um, it got me thinking, like with the commandos in Minnetonka, the suburbs were out there. The western suburbs, I mean, I maybe, you know, uh, it seems like there's a fertile ground for a lot of the Minnesota music came from that area. Yeah, who knows why that happens? You know, I mean, it really was Hopkins and Minnetonka. I went to Hopkins schools, but I lived in Minnetonka. And, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, Terry Katzman went to Minnetonka schools, for instance, and, and I didn't meet him until, you know, the record store downtown and stuff. So, yeah, I don't I don't know why that was, except that I always say uh, I think, you know, the Twin Cities in general uh, have always really embraced the arts in a big way. And I mean, there was certainly a division when I was in high school. I mean, because I was always really drawn to the arts. And of course, there was a lot of people that I went to school with that didn't give a rat's ass. But I think that generally speaking, there was a, a real, uh, you know, the arms of the Twin Cities were open to all different kinds of the arts. And and I benefited from that. And, and uh, why it happened in Hopkins and Minnetonka, I'll have, have no theory. <laughs> Yeah, it's it. I mean, it's it's crazy, but things sometimes maybe it's just coincidence. Sometimes these coincidences happen. Sure. Uh, one of, one of the things I ask everyone about is attaching music to seasons. Like, are there music? And this might be a little lost if you live in Southern California, but um, is there music that's fall music to you? Winter music, summer music, etc. You know, that is an interesting question. Um, I, I have one one really vivid memory of being at um. My friend Bob Ivers' house, he ended up being on our Big Hits of Mid-America Volume 3 with uh, Robert Ivers and Ice Stars. But anyway, I remember being at his house with Rob Henry, who ended up being the guitar player in Fingerprints and one of my very oldest friends since like third grade. I remember being at, at Bob Ivers' house with Rob Henry in the fall, and I happened to mention that I just got Led Zeppelin 3. And they said, oh, my God, you've got to go home and get it. And I lived about a half a mile away. And I said, OK, I'll be right back. And I just ran. And I remember this being an October night or, you know, some kind of fall anyway, uh, and, and running literally a half a mile, getting the record and bringing it back. And of course, we had to smoke some pot and, and listen to Led Zeppelin 3, which is still my favorite Led Zeppelin record. And that, that is a very fall record to me. Very, very fall uh, vibe. That whole just the immigrant song, the way it starts out at the beginning. Very kind of eerie, spooky, Halloweeny, maybe. Yeah, and there's the tangerines on that one, right? Oh, like, yeah, oh. some of that arpeggiated guitar always makes me think of the autumn. But I, I mean, also release dates. I mean, it's and, and, and maybe this is a release date thing too. I mean, I always attach "Let It Be," the replacements "Let It Be" to "Fall." That was an October record, and and Tim was a September record too. So, like some some of those things, I remember those were early records that I was excited when they were coming out. And and attaching them to the actual season, the smell, the you know, like the Beatles' White Album is a winter record for me. I remember that being late November or November sometime, and and being snowy, and and I was supposed to be outside helping my dad do something, you know, putting the storm windows on or whatever <laughs> it was that you do in Minnesota, and and I and I couldn't leave my room, and he was so mad at me, but I was like, you don't understand. It's this. There's a new Beatle record. I went to pick it up, and I didn't even know it was a double album. That's how you know, uh, pre-internet, we were in that thing. And it was just, it, I was like, I was just practically weeping. I was like getting two new Beatle albums at the same time. My brain could barely, uh, you know, compute. 
I mean, if it came out in November, I, I guess I hadn't, I, I hadn't thought of that's probably in some way for the Christmas season, right? Well, I think it was just when they finished it. I mean, you know, they've been working on that for a while and, and, you know, they did that incredible, you know, sequencing session where they, I think they worked for 24 hours straight or something when they sequenced that record because they wanted to get it out before Christmas. But I don't think it was really strategically planned that way. It was, you know, they recorded in fits and stops and starts and whatnot. And, you know, obviously there were times where, you know, Lennon's recording in one Abbey Road rooms and McCartney's recording in another one and Pink Floyd are in another one. You know, it's like, holy buckets. <laughs> well, know? it's going to, it's a Beatles, so it's going to sell no matter if they put out in January or November, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so and here's another thing I ask a lot of people. Have you ever had a song, can you think of a song that's been ruined for you? Like, like I mean, the obvious would be a breakup, but is there any, is there any, music and and if there's none that's fine but is is there ever anything that you're like ugh um you know i i um what were we just talking about oh um i went to see neil young recently and he played his first uh you know solo acoustic shows f- f- first post pandemic shows and he'd made a big deal of it beforehand about how you know this is a deep cuts tour and i don't want to have to deal with an audience who's going to compare my heart of gold from 72 to my heart of gold in 86 to my whatever and then he goes and does heart of gold and I was like, what? Why are you doing this? But Heart of Gold is one that, you know, I don't hate the song, but I don't ever need to hear it again. Right. Um, speaking of Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven's probably another one of those. It just got drilled, you know, a little too much into my head. But uh, but I don't really dislike them. And when I play the albums that those songs are from, I don't like skip them. They fit, you know, so well in context, of course. That one Phil Collins song, In the Air, with the big drum fill, that one felt like it was on the radio for two years straight. And I just can't deal with it uh yeah. ever since that one that that that's an overkill for me no me in the in the book you tell a crazy story and i'm not going to ruin it because everyone should read the book but about gene clark and rick danko and meeting up with them in a hotel but so you know you see bad behavior like that you've been in the industry and on the road and all that you see bad behavior are you easily able to separate sort of bad behavior from the art do you still love the birds etc do you still um or is that like oh that guy no i mean I, you know it is funny how that works you know it's funny like um yes I, I think i can separate uh and and certainly in the case of danko and clark i mean you know <laughs> I, you couldn't i couldn't stop listening to them if i tried sure but i think you know it is funny sometimes i've said like you know even when rod stewart went disco it didn't make me dislike you know those you know faces records of the first rod stewart solo records that to me were just you know mind-blowingly great at the time we couldn't you know we all bought them and played them incessantly you know david bowie went through a patch i I, from when he put out let's dance i couldn't take it and i didn't listen i gave up on him for 10 years and didn't like him again until he made a record in 93 called Buddha of Suburbia, you know, that sort of stuff. But I, but I always treasured the prior, the, the pre let's dance records. And, and then I think after he did uh, Buddha of Suburbia and Heathen and those records, he, I think all the rest of the records he made until he died were fantastic. As I've gotten older, I've really appreciated artists, you know, like, like more and more with any artist with a catalog, I'm accepting of it all. Maybe they've got some, I like more than others, but, but, it's easy, you know, if someone makes 20 records, by definition, some of them are going to be not the best, right? Well, true. I mean, I think that that's a, a great example of that is for me is, is Bob Dylan, who, you know, certainly made some records that I, I won't go back to very often, if at all. But I love him so much that there are times where I'd rather listen to kind of a crummy Bob Dylan record than listen to anything else. I don't know why that is, you know, but I just, you know, he's, 
he's, of course, another one that's just kind of separate from everyone else. I mean, I think he and the Beatles in particular are just so they stand separate from all the record, all the rest of the recording artists in, in my mind anyway. They're I think about that in The Clash, you know, I mean, when Sandinista came out, people were like, oh, it doesn't need to be three records. It could be easily two or even one. And now with Joe Strummer gone and The Clash broken up, I think, well, thank God there's all this Clash music that I can wade through. And they're not all the best songs of their catalog, but thank God they exist. I am totally with you. I remember London Calling coming out and being a double album. We liked that, you know, start to finish. (laughs) And then Sandinista was a little bit much. I mean, even at the time, I think. But they also, you know, the Clash also had that thing that I think that gave them longevity and that they weren't, they certainly weren't just doing punk rock. And they had that reggae thing Mm -hmm. that really played into, you know, I think making their music stronger and more long lasting. You know, um, the book, the book, which is, which I love, and it's called Euphoric Recall. And the subtitles, a half century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record collector, and tastemaker. In that sentence, you put music fan first. Also, right up front in the book, you, you give a quote from your son uh, who said while watching a band, sometimes I get a feeling for music I don't get anywhere else, which is beautifully succinct way of saying something that I felt my whole life. And I, I don't know if I could say it better. This sort of reverence and true fandom you have, do you think that's in a lot in, in some way what's led you to have such a, a fruitful career in music? I mean, that's so hard to analyze something like that in yourself, I think. I don't know. I just know that I've never, you know, I've just, you know, something something clicked with me early on with, you know, that Everly song in particular, um, where, you know, I really, I really, I always, I think, you know, most humans, you know, are touched by music in some way. I mean, I remember even my dad, who was totally non-musical, talking about a song one time. I remember this really specifically where he was like, oh, and that song just makes me, and he maybe even put his hands together and kind of, or his hands on his heart or whatever. And I thought, well, dad, if you feel that way about this song, why don't you listen to more music to get that feeling more often? You know, but he just didn't, you know, he was a, you know, he did other things, you know, he was a, he loved sports and he loved to read and things like that. Um, And for me, it was just, I really, I, I, so music always appealed to me from my earliest memories, but there was a time and it was, I believe that Everly's was really the first time where I remember almost being a little spooked by the effect it was having on me. And so it didn't scare me away, but it really made me recognize that there was something there that spoke to me in a really personal way. And so it, it just, I just, I, um, that's, yeah, I mean, that's just, it's always been my thing. I've just always been just super, you know, interested, uh, obsessed with music. That's all. I, I don't know why. And neither parent neither parent was. And yet my brother, who was in a bluegrass band, different kind of music, but he was as obsessed with his kind of music as I was with mine. I don't know why that is. Again. I, I grew up very similar. I didn't, my parents didn't have a lot of records, tons of music around. They, they liked music some, but... I remember being at a young age and being like, oh my God, I think I like music more than anyone else. Yeah. And, 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 and being not, a, not in any way ashamed by it, but, but, but I think I'm reacting more to what I'm hearing than anyone around me. And it wasn't, I feel the same. And, I, and it wasn't one-upmanship either. It wasn't like, I like music more than everybody else in an arrogant way. It was just like, God, I don't know, but I don't see people like, you know, weeping every time they hear, uh, you know, uh, she's leaving home or something. 
I was also, I mean, it, it caused me to seek, I had, I had no, uh, I have a younger sister, but not an older sibling. So I was looking for scraps of information always, you know, and, and I still do. And one, one of the things I love hearing about um, growing up in Minneapolis was how many great shows there were at the Guthrie Theater. Um, and oh. you, you worked there and you, mem- you mentioned seeing Leon Russell there, Bruce Springsteen, Round Born to Run. I think some, I think the, did the Who play there? The Who did Tommy there in 69. Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin played there on the first album, for God's sakes, and I and I don't know why I didn't go because I was a big Yardbirds fan. I should have known better, but I, I the Fall played there when I was in ninth grade, and some of my friends went. I just don't know why I missed that. But you were a usher there, right? I started as an usher, and then I worked in you know almost all the departments at one time or another. I was I loved the theater, and I wanted I just wanted to do I just wanted I, I mean I was there practically twenty four hours a day for a while there. I just you know I, I'd go to work for matinees and stay until after the evening show was done and you know i just wanted to do whatever i could so you mentioned duncan hannah earlier and he he wrote a great um book uh 20th century boy some of his diaries from uh the 70s and he he worked there too did you guys overlap at all yeah we did we worked there together we carpooled together um i was just saying to i was telling somebody just recently um i remember um he picked me up and we were driving in for an afternoon concert on a Sunday, an unusual afternoon concert, a 2.30 p.m. show with this new guy named Elton John. <laughs> and um, and I said, who is this guy anyway? Do you know Duncan? And he said, I don't, but I heard he was gospel rock. And then we had the radio on as we were driving in Highway 12 there to the Guthrie and uh, and your song came on. And uh, is it your song? Is that the title? Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. Uh, I get that sometimes mixed up with the Leon Russell song of a similar name. Anyway, the um, uh, your song was on, and I was like, "Wow, this is a cool song." And then we went to see him, and of course, he had the trio. It was between the first album and Tumbleweed Connection, and they were just a full balls to the wall rock and roll band. And the interesting story about that is that uh, that was the only date available for Elton to play Minneapolis, and the Sue Weil, who booked the Guthrie shows, she worked for the Walker Art Center. Uh, Sue Wilde said, well, we have an annual puppet show for the deaf <laughs> on that Sunday night and we can't move it. It's an it's a institution. It's a long running thing in Minneapolis. But I could certainly open up the theater in the afternoon if you want to do an afternoon show. And they said, we'll take it. So Elton had to play. You know, we joked about Elton opening for the puppets, but it was just an explosive show. And that was uh, fantastic. But you mustn't, re- mustn't forget, you know, the Guthrie was a huge deal, but also right around the same time, the late 60s, the Labor Temple I mean, that's probably the most hallowed uh, music room in, in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul for me. Where was that located? It was on uh, 4th Street and, and uh, just shy of where it crossed Hennepin Avenue on the east side of the Mississippi. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like yeah, coming cool. out of Dinky Town. Right, right. It was on a third floor auditorium. I mean, absolutely the vibiest Minneapolis rock venue ever, if you ask me. And uh, what, what's the best show you saw there? Oh, God. Well, I could tell you the best shows I missed. I didn't see the original Procol Harum. I didn't see uh, the original Jeff Beck group, but I did see uh, Savoy Brown, Country Joe and the Fish, Johnny Winter, Grand Funk Railroad. That was the first show I ever saw that I thought, this is too loud. (laughs) God, just, uh, you know, they were only around for about a year and a half. They had two seasons um, and uh, that they lasted and then they got shut down by, you know, other concert promoters who didn't want them stealing their thunder. And they were a bunch of, you know, hippies that were running it. So they were easily usurped. But uh, (laughs) but that was that was I mean, if, if you look up some of the shows that were at the Labor Temple, it will 
blow your mind. And just the, really the vibe there, it was really, there was no, there was no, there were no adults in the room, you know, I mean, it was all run by, you know, young, long haired people. And, and it was just a wonderful place. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Speaking of venues, you know, in the in the book, you talk a lot about the Longhorn, which is I've always been fascinated with stories about Longhorn and Zoogies, which was the same club, different name. For one, you list bands that have played there, and it caused a memory for me because I've been telling people that the first time I saw live music was at the State Fair, and I saw '70s Teen Idol Leaf Garrett play. But I realized that in, when I was even younger, like first or second grade, I went to a lock-in at the YMCA where they locked a bunch of kids in and they had a rock band and it was Wilma and the Wilbers. And wow. so that was my first band. Can you tell me what, what you remember about that band? Because I barely remember anything. Well, they had a girl singer and uh, Wilma was not her real name. Um, and I should remember she was, she was just a great person, very pretty girl, very smart girl. Kathy was her name, but I can't think of her last name. But anyway, they were, and uh, her boyfriend, uh, who became her husband, uh, they got married at the Longhorn, on the stage at the Longhorn. Uh, he was the lead guitar player. Rob Franken might have been his name. And they were just a really fun, you know, maybe in broad strokes, kind of blondie-ish. Yeah, that's what I figured. Sur yeah. sur a little surfy or no? Yeah, I don't remember them being surfy, but maybe. Okay. Okay. There, I mean, there's lots of legendary shows there, Talking Heads, Blondie, but the ones I always heard about were the only ones, and Johnny Thunder's Gang War. I think there's a big Johnny Thunder's Gang War poster in Or Folk, the last Suicide Commando shows. People talked about those for probably still. Were the shows at the Longhorn similar to how shows are structured now? Like, did you do a 45-minute support act and then headliner plays for 90 minutes, or was it multiple sets, or was it was it different in any way that way? For the local bands, anyway, we'd always had an opener, and then the headliner would do two sets. That was just par for the course everywhere at that time. And I think when the national acts came through, you know, they didn't necessarily do two sets. You know, it would be, they would do like the, you know, hour 15 plus encore, which is, you know, 90 minutes probably. Speaking of which, in the, the venues um, you talk about, and when you're at Orfolk, some of the amazing in-stores that were there. But, and then you mentioned the Ramones playing Kel two nights at Kelly's in St. Paul. And I'm wondering, what is that? And why did they play there? Well, we don't, nobody really knows. And, you know, it's funny that... Uh, Apart from the shows in the big, uh, like St. Paul Civic Center or the St. Paul Civic Center theater section, which was where some of the best shows, you know, back in that day, in those days uh, happened in the slightly smaller room. Apart from those, there was really no clubs in St. Paul. And I don't know exactly why that was until later now. Of course, we have the Turf Club, which I don't know if that's really St. Paul. It's kind of midway, but it was a surprise to everyone. But the Longhorn had just opened too. You know, the Longhorn had opened June 1st. 
77. And the Ramones played, I think, uh, July 1st and 2nd, 77. So uh, I think that we just missed the opportunity to have the, the Ramones at the Longhorn. But, but, but Kelly's was cool because they had two stages so they could have the opening band set up over here. And then there, well, you didn't have to wait for teardown and moving drum kits around or whatever. And then the headliner could come in. And that was in the day, you know, they call it warm-up acts. I mean, now you go to a show and the warm-up act plays and then, you know, you wait 45 minutes for the headliner. You're hardly warmed up by the time the headliner <laughs> comes on. In those days, it really was. It was a warm-up set. They'd play their 40 minutes or whatever. And then you had maybe a 10-minute break and then the headliner came on and you were still pumped, you know? That's like and a that was really That was really cool because uh, there, there was three bands on that bill. Berlin played... Uh, I believe first, and they didn't fit at all. I don't know why they were on the bill. And then the Commandos played second, and then the Ramones played. But it was, you know, that was, um, yeah, that I, I, that was like uh, a religious experience. I mean, you know, was, you know, you you weren't allowed not to attend if you were, you know, part of the scene. Everybody right. it was like, you better be there. Now, obviously, you're a huge part of the replacement story. It's been, you know, it's the often repeated tale: Westerberg coming to the record store, handing you the tape. You immediately realize it's amazing. Start talking to them, get them a show at the Longhorn, which you saw their first show. And you become their manager pretty quickly, which is a pretty crazy thing. And, you know, this is my favorite band we're talking about. So, but, but, and they have a rep of being scrappy, unprofessional at times, etc. But they had a manager immediately, which that seems something that would get grumbles, especially in the Midwest. Did, did they take shit for it or did you take shit for that? I mean, there were other bands that had you know, friends that were trying to handle their business, I guess. And, you know, but I, I didn't really, I didn't like march in and say, I'm the manager now. You know, I, I it was, it was really, I fell into the job by accident. Really, really. I'd never, I'd never aspired to be their manager, but, you know, we had a altercation that's written about in the book where, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Hartley Frank, who took over the Longhorn after Jay left, you know, he was just, uh, he was pushing them to do things that they didn't need to do. And I watched this happen with lots of young bands where you get somebody that gets their ear and tells them, well, you have to do this and this and this. And it's like, I'd be going, no, you don't, you don't have to do any of that. But I wasn't the spokesman. So I maybe kept my mouth shut. And in the case with Hartley doing that, I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. I said, absolutely. This is, this is wrong. I don't think you should do this. And, you know, we had a fight about it. And then that Hartley suddenly said, do I have to talk to this guy every time I want to book you? And Westerberg really did look at me like, is it okay if I say yes? And I said, absolutely. And that was it. So suddenly I'm their manager. And then I'm like, oh, I guess I got to figure out how to manage a band. <laughs> but I mean, really what I did, I think, you know, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I had thought about doing. You know, to me, what I really did was I ran interference for them because I just tried to stop, you know, you just, you don't need to listen to these people that are telling you what you have to do next. You you need to do what you feel right about doing. And I'll be happy to tell you if I think it's a good idea or not, but it's your decision, not mine, you know, kind of thing. So, well, you also drove and it, it didn't sound like there's a lot of driver's licenses <laughs> in the replacement. Well, you know, there you go. I mean, that was really it. None of them, you know, Chris Mars had a motorcycle license and none of the other three ever to this day had, you know, uh, Paul and Tommy still don't drive. Yeah, well, there you go. So you need someone. A lot of the guests already, aside from you, this season that I've had on have talked about the Tim reissue, the Let It Bleed sessions. None of them has been close to the material as you. Is it cool for you to hear these new mixes or is it disorienting in some way? No, I think it's really cool. And I really, I've just said, uh, uh, quote unquote, it's a correction. I think it's the way the record should have sounded originally. And I don't have a bone to pick with Tommy Erdely. Um uh, you know, I think it was a combination of everybody who was involved and, and you know, to some degree, Tommy um, 
may have been playing both sides of the fence. Um, you know, he wanted to satisfy the replacements who he admired greatly, but he also wanted to get more jobs producing records for Warner. And uh, so it was a little bit, you know, maybe it got watered down that way. I don't know. I don't know if that's really the reason it ended up sounding like it did. But I also remember very specifically times where, and, and you know, I wasn't around for a lot of the sessions of that record um, as, as I had been with the previous ones. But um, I do remember a number of times being in there and seeing Tommy setting levels with the faders and then looking away and seeing Westerberg pump up the guitar or something when Tommy wasn't looking. And sometimes Tommy would catch it and pull it back down. Sometimes he wouldn't. And sometimes it probably went the other way where Tommy put something up and Westerberg didn't see it happen, you know? So, um, so yeah, there was a little bit of, a, a you know, a duking it out there in the mixing of it, but for whatever reason, it just, yeah, it ended up being a really weird sounding record. And one of the interviews that I read about this Tim reissue, there was an old quote from Paul who said, they asked him, like, did you realize that it sounded weird when you were done? And he said, well, we did kind of all realize it, but it was by then we just, we had to be done with the record. We got, had, God, we got to go hit the road. We got tour dates coming up or whatever. And, um, and uh, it was, and that was the first time, you know, we'd, we'd actually booked six weeks. It was literally from about the beginning of June to mid July that that record was recorded. So they'd never had six weeks in one full stretch before. It was always catch as catch can in the early days because they were, you know, new to the scene and didn't have much clout to get studio time. And then later as they, uh, you know, uh, developed clout, they were on the road all the time. So we'd have to record when we were in town for a few days and then, you know, like we started Let It Be in August of 83. And then there was a little bit of a pause. And I think it was because Paul, you know, had some songs that were still coming in or weren't finished yet. And it was really good that we waited because we ended up with, you know, Unsatisfied and, you know, some things that were, you know, that were late to the song list for that album. You're saying that they recorded until July 85, right? So that means the record came out in September? Is It, it came out that, in October. October. Okay, yeah. so did it come out in October? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. And we I've did been, the entry shows in October for the record release. So here's here's the, maybe you can help me with a mystery. Then I uh, I that the first time I saw the replacements was the second day of those shows, and I remember going to Northern Lights afterwards and buying a copy of Tim, and but then when I looked it up, uh, it says it came out in September, and I thought that doesn't sound right to me because I couldn't have waited. Right. And so maybe there's something. Mystery did you, here. Did you pull the release date off the Twin Tone website, perhaps? I pulled it off Wikipedia. So, okay, Wikipedia. Because the twin, some of the dates in the Twin Tone site I found are not exactly accurate. I hate to say that, but I, and I don't know how we'll rectify that. But um, <laughs> yeah, street dates for, uh, you know, indie labels stuff is always like, you know, dependent on if we had enough money to pay for the pressing or whatever it was, you know, there was... A lot of that, but I believe that record did come out in October, and you know we did five uh, five days in the entry. And I saw the one the uh, a few opened up the show, and uh, that was my for both my first time in the entry and the first time I saw the replacements. So and was the, did they play well that show? Do you remember? Well, yeah, they played well. I would say they did both. They played, but it was not like a show I've seen before. It was not balls to the wall, kick ass, playing one song after the other. But here's a funny thing about your book, also. At that show, they played a song, and it, 
And I've been thinking about that song for the last, I don't know, what are we at, 30 years, 40 years? And and your book cleared up what it was. It was the um, Yeah, Yeah by the Revillos. Oh. And um, I never, somehow I'd never heard that song before. And when I when I read it, I said, that's the song, because I remember, I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I hit, I looked it up on, on title uh, and pl- hit play, and there it was. It was like, I've been thinking about that song for 20, 30 40 years, let's say 40. <laughs> well, and uh, that was uh, also Bob Stinson saying it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh and and that was that was another thing. Um I did bring up also with Bob Mould when he was just on about the Bob singing the Crusher song and the and the live uh, thing for the Metro, which we both got a big kick out. The Crusher was I was on, not a huge wrestling fan, but the one guy I did like was the Crusher. So yeah, um, he also used to sing a great version of Little GTO by Ronnie and the Daytonas. <laughs> I have not heard that. That I have was not heard that. And his falsetto and in his inimitable Bob Stinson falsetto. <laughs> Do you you know you? You go into this a little bit in the book, but I, I wanted to bring it up. The, the narrative about the replacements that they were like a near miss, that they could have, you know, been so huge and they had all this potential. And, you know, we're talking about, again about my favorite band, but I sort of think this might be not quite, this never rang true to me. I mean, I feel like they got pretty big for what was happening at the time and, you know, how they played the game or didn't play the game. And I'm not sure to me that they had the commercial potential of REM or something like that. Um, that said, the reunion shows were massive on uh, showing how many people have been touched by the music. Do you, do, have you, do you feel like they could have been bigger? Or do you think they did pretty well? I mean, no, I don't, I think they should have been bigger and, you know, but it, it was, you know, the climate at the time, you know, just wasn't, you know, I mean, that's that joke of, of you know, somebody said at Michael Hill, maybe uh, their A&R guy when they got to Sire said, um, I, I believe it was him that said, you know, they were they were too rambunctious for radio when they first came out. And then as they developed, they became too mellow for radio or, you know, Westerberg started writing the more introspective songs. So it was maybe a little bit wrong place, right time, or maybe, you know, maybe they were a little ahead of their time, so to speak. But I, But I mean, you know, to me, I mean, I, I I remember thinking that this was just going to go like this because I just, I mean, I watched them, you know, night after night after night. And there were just, you know, honestly, so many times I watched them, I just stood there and I just went, there cannot be a better rock and roll band on planet Earth right now. This has to be it. It can't get any better than this. And I really believed that. And I really thought that. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, as Westerberg developed confidence and began writing things like color me impressed and I will dare and unsatisfied and can't hardly wait. You know, there was, um, you know, there was an anger that developed in him that was a little bit maybe, um, and maybe this was a little unbecoming, uh, I have to say. And I, and I love Paul dearly, but I didn't really like the way this looked when he was kind of, it seemed like he was kind of pissed off. He wasn't more famous. And, and, but I don't say that as a cut. I say that as if you're the guy writing songs like that and they're not being wildly successful, you got to wonder what's wrong with the world. I mean, to me, like, how could, how could Can't Hardly Wait not have been a smash hit? I just don't understand. Right. I really don't. But, but did they have the juice to do that time after time? I don't know. You know, they, they, I think when they went to, um, you know, not so much with Please to Meet Me, but certainly Don't Tell a Soul, I thought that they were trying a little too hard to write songs for the radio. And I think that's why that's the eighth best replacements record because they, you know, it, it, um, it, it certainly has some great material on it, but boy, I think it's got some stinkers too. 
Yeah, it's it. I mean, all it feels like to me, like then they re they remixed it, and that got really good reviews. And I I I have to say, I I enjoyed it more, but I still feel like the tempos could be clicked up a little bit in a lot of cases. And we'll inherit the earth, but we don't want it, want it, want it. I mean, I just I just thought that was like. You know, because I remember, I remember Paul actually saying, they're trying to make me write Bastards of Young all over again, you know? And, you know, this was supposed to be my dark pop album, you know? That was really, you know, it was rock and roll ghost. And, you know, that was kind of what where he was at. You know, he was, uh, I think, at, at that time, really, you know, uh, Nighttime by Big Star, I think, was the one song I always felt like Paul wished he'd written. And uh, that's kind of where his head was at. And, you know, of course, you know, Warner's wanted, uh, yeah, more Bastards of Young, I guess. A few months after that entry show, they they right around the time of SNL, they played the main room. It was an all ages show. I, I, I it had to be if I was there, um, and that I think I still think is the best show I've ever seen. Of and, and like I still, when people ask me, I, that's just my answer because I I don't remember anything ever moving me more than that. And they played really well that night. Yeah, yeah. When they were on, it was just unbelievable. I mean, I I was thinking the great you know, um, comparison of when we went to New York in December of 84 after let it be had come out, they had been on the cover of the village voice. We were like, what? We knew that journalists had written with us for a bit and was going to write a story. I don't think we knew it was going to be the cover until we got to New York. And then suddenly you're walking down fifth Avenue and every corner newsstand, you know, there's their ugly mug staring out at you. Right. Um, but you know, so they did, uh, so we did a book to CBGB's gig first, and and then uh, Irving Plaza got interested, much bigger room than they'd ever played in New York. We were like, what? And so, of course, Irving Plaza had a no-compete thing. So we had to go to Hilly Crystal at Seabees and say, hey, can we have the band play unannounced? And I really thought he was going to say, fuck, no, get show canceled. But we had a, I mean, and I don't know if I twisted his arm or our agent Frank Riley did, but um, the funny thing about the Seabees thing was that Hilly never, ever liked the replacements at all. And but he and I got along really well. I don't know why. I just thought he was so cool and he seemed to like me and we just were good pals. And so I think that, you know, maybe Frank twisted his arm, like I said, but I think I might have had some sway in that, too. And I just said, (laughs) you know, can we please because we really love CB so much. Can we please do the show under a false name? And I said, you know, word will get out. You'll have a full room. And and he just said yes. But the difference between that CB show which was Alex Chilton opening first time we were around him. Of course, we were all so excited. Everybody had a little too much to drink. And the show really is just almost a complete failure, I think, really. Some of their drunk shows are fun and entertaining. That was neither. And But then, you know, four or five days later, they play Irving Plaza. And that might have been the best replacement show I ever saw. I mean, just they were un, unbelievable. And you could feel it in the room. And there were a bunch of my friends, like Tim Holmes from Minneapolis was there, I remember. And he had not cotton to the replacements yet and they wa- and I remember being up in the VIP section when they walked on stage and I just saw Tim's it was like he was the guy in the Max L ad where he's <laughs> sitting in the chair with his hair blowing back he was like where how did I miss this you know how did I not know that they were this good you know they just blew the fucking doors off the place you know the moment where Westerberg gave you the tape and it's you know you describe it as sort of a hair standing up on your arms moment have you had that with any other artists or earlier in their career even even if you didn't work with them like have you can you remember anything else that like like just like stopped you in its tracks dozens of things i mean you know hundreds probably i i've i've ha- i have uh i have epiphanies on you know music on a regular basis i mean you know I, I would say I had a feeling like that when I first heard Phoebe Bridgers. Mm-hmm. I heard her and I was just like, 
you know, this is this is a level above anything else that's going on. Everybody else should just close up their tents and go home for a while because Phoebe Bridges has arrived. I, I mean, I think she's an astonishing artist. I think we'll be looking back at her one day as uh, Joni Mitchell or something. She'll have 40 albums out and and they'll all be great. There's a KEXP session that I watched on YouTube on her first record uh, that just made me like, I just kept hitting a play again. I was like, this is, you know, this is just, this is just pure and, and really good. And we're going to just, you know, <laughs> we're about to watch. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like, look at that, which, you know, they, she, she had herself set up with motion sickness and all that to just really take off. And then what does she do for the next record? You know, she went and made an, an art record. You know, I mean, I just think that's so daring. And I, I, I just love her even more for that. I mean, you know, here's a question for you. I mean, do you have, what do you think the best thing about her is? Is, is it her songwriting? Yeah. I mean, I personally, I think personally, it might be her, just her singing. I think she's one of the most masterful vocalists I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the whole thing. But but I think the songwriting to me, you know, there there's there's some of those songs. And to me, I'm still like the first records. I, and I'm a guy... Almost always, an artist. The first record is like, like it's it's their it's their opening statement, right? It's their business card, and you're like, I'm in, right? So there's like a Scott Street and Funeral from those uh, those that record, and I went and saw her, and it's that great thing, and you know, with the, when what's one of the nice things about living in New York or LA, you can kind of like, okay. I'm going to go see this one because I don't know if I'm going to see it like this anymore. And right. I went and saw like the Mu Williamsburg Music Hall, or I think it was, or it might have been Bowery Ball, or it was one of those two rooms. And it was just like, oh my God, I'm glad I'm here because this, it's going to be, it's going to be MSG pretty soon. It's going to yeah. be. And, uh, but I do think the songwriting is just very strong and, um, and, and very wise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to credit three things with her and we don't need to get off too far on the no, TV tangent. But great. while we're, while we're here, um, you know, the, uh, cause I used to wrestle with this late at night and I'd be listening to Phoebe Bridgers records and I go, is it her songwriting or is it the voice? And I kind of decided for me, it's the voice and I'm kind of a vocal centric guy anyway. But I think the third ingredient that makes it really special is Tony Berg's production. I think mm -hmm. that the production on those Phoebe Bridgers records are, are, is just magical. And there are so many, you know, listening in headphones where, you know, on the, you know, 150th listen, I hear something on the left channel in the background that I'd never heard before. And I go, that's just genius. I think a great example is when she mentions in um, um, uh, uh, the opening track on Stranger in the Alps, um, Smoke Signals, where she says, um, she says, it's been on my mind since Bowie died. And then you hear this, like, sounds like a space capsule going. <laughs> it goes from the left channel to the right channel. And I just was like, that was just, it made me tear up because it was, you know, not so long after Bowie had died. And I thought it was such a, just a loving, lovely tribute to him, you know, and that was a great sonic um, idea. And I don't know, maybe it was Phoebe's idea, but I love the way Tony Berg produces those records. I think he's, and of course they've got Phoebe involved in the production and they've got Ethan Griska involved in the mm -hmm. production, but maybe it's the combo of those three, but I think I give credit to Tony Berg. <laughs> the uh the, the the line that I always think about where she says it's a shower beer, it's a payment plan. And I as someone who's who's taken a few cold cans of beer into the shower with me over the years, uh I really loved that. And that that actually made me feel that made me feel uh like I was back in South Minneapolis, uh taking a beer in the shower. And that's where uh I, I've been trying to wrap these up with a with a, with a similar question with everyone, and that's this. All your travels, you've you've been around the world with rock and roll, etc. How 
you you know you grew up in the Minneapolis area like I did. How has your relationship with your hometown changed since you've done all this? I, I mean, I don't know that it's really changed. I mean, I, I I hold Minneapolis in such high regard, and and you know, I lived in L.A. for 28 years now. I think, um, uh, and I love it here. I absolutely adore living in L.A. But uh, as I like to emphasize, I didn't move away from Minneapolis. I moved to Los Angeles, and you know, it was uh, I moved here for a, a girl, and uh, we're married and happy as can be. Uh, but there was also the the record industry. You know, I, this was the center of the music business in a lot of ways, and and I just wanted to be here. And uh, so um, I have nothing against Minneapolis. I love it. Uh, I, I I probably winters are a little harder for me to take when I'm back in the winter, just having my blood thinned from living in L.A. for so long. But um, I I mean. I don't know that it's really changed. I mean, it just seems like it's still so wide open to, um, you know, uh, you know, all different kinds of, you know, great bands. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly hearing new things that, you know, uh, that I love. I feel the same way. I, oh, we just went back and played the Minnesota state fair and Bob Mold opened that. and it was like, you know, I mean, it will always be my hometown and, and I will, and, and, and there's nothing, there's nothing like the rush of getting on stage for a hometown show. And, uh, um, what the one follow up question I want to ask, cause I've asked a few people this, if there's a, and I'll go first, you know, like I was thinking about like, if there's a place that doesn't exist anymore in Minneapolis that you could walk into tonight or today, um, what would it be? And I, I was just thinking about how much I miss the uptown bars as great as first Ave, and how many, how many pl- shows I've seen at first Ave in the entry, which is always the number one rock club. However, man, the uptown bar was, was a real vibe. And I saw a pavement there guided by voices. Um, Alex Chilton, um, so many great shows uh and it was sort of it's hard to explain how much um because there was often not a cover how um how how great that place was yeah well if you're talking about a live venue specifically a live music venue no it doesn't matter it could be a restaurant could be a bar could be a a coffee shop it'd have to be orfolk then yeah i mean orfolk was uh that was just it was heavenly and and to have 10 years there um you know, I started there in April of 73 and I left there in June of 83. It was, I mean, I, I mean, I just can't even tell you how much fun it was to go to work there every day. And just, you know, things like, you know, we all lived right behind the store. So like in, in, in the winter when the wax museum on Lake street would be closed because nobody could get to the store, we just walk down, unlock the door. We'd be in our bathrobes, you know, opening the store. What do you do? You send somebody down to Hum's Liquor with a sled and they bring back a case of beer and then everybody you know, has a few beers and, or, you know, a, a margarita or something like that. And, and, you know, stores open, ready for business. I mean, that was just the greatest place in the world. I, I can't, uh, you know, all of the, you know, and it gets, it gets a lot of, um, you know, people talk about it, you know, in reverent tones all the time. And it, I think it deserves every, you know, every bit of reverence you could muster because that was, uh, it was the clubhouse. I mean, we had so much fun there. I mean, I just picture standing at the counter, Bob Stinson sitting over at the, you know, next to where all the magazines and books were, he'd constantly be reading and, you know, stealing Cokes and, you know, whatever. I mean, it was just, it was just a great, it was the clubhouse, you know? So I, I took guitar lessons from Chris Osgood and um, he told me at some point, he told me a lot of good things, but uh, he told me at some point, if you want to get real records, you have to go to Orfolk. <laughs> and so I headed over to Orfolk and I actually, the first record I bought there was Suicide Commandos Make a Record. Wow. Um, but you know, I mean, I think that that's, that was, uh, um, that was the kind of store also, even as a kid, 
they were pretty nice to me and they'd say, have you checked this out? And, uh, and, you know, got some cool records that way. Yeah. I mean, I hope we were nice to most people. I, I, you know, I hear sometimes that people say, oh, they thought we were snotty and Mm. I, I don't remember feeling snotty or anybody else being snotty, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, the only thing I would say is that, you know, we might've been a little short with some people because, we were so in the thick of it. I mean, we really were, you know, I mean, everybody who worked there was, you know, lived and breathed the music. And so, you know, we might have been a little dismissive of somebody who was, you know, a little more casual, a music fan. But certainly yeah. there was never anybody feeling they were superior or anything. We just accidentally maybe made somebody feel bad, like Grant Hart, for instance, who famously said, Orfolk was a place to go to be condescended to. And I'm like, God, really? I don't remember ever. I loved Grant from the second I met him. I would never have been condescending to him. All right. That was really fun. The end of that conversation made me think about how lucky I was always in the, that the generation ahead of me in Minneapolis rock when I was growing up was always really kind and helpful. I never felt condescension. And that was a blessing. It helped a lot. I've known Peter for a long time now. I really love how his enthusiasm for music is super evident. He's not waned, he's not seemed jaded. It was a complete honor to have him on the show. And nice to get closure on that Revillo song. Yeah, yeah, it's a jam, check it out. I've been thinking about it for like 38 years. and The book helped me figure it out. Uh, one thing, we mentioned Duncan Hanna, a friend of Peter's. And it's worth noting that the Duncan Hanna book, um, which came out a few years ago, it's called 20th Century Boy. Also an incredible rock book that starts out in suburban Minneapolis, ends up in downtown NYC in the 70s. Really cool. If you haven't read that, you should get that too. But make sure to get Euphoric Recall by Peter Jesperson. It's almost Christmas. It would make an excellent book for any rock and roll enthusiast in your life. And you should come see Peter, Tommy Stinson, David Frick, and myself at the NYC book event for Euphoric Recall on December 6th at Rough Trade. Go to roughtrade.com for more info there. And I've got a few live audience podcast events to remind you about Wednesday, November 29th, coming up as part of the Old Steady's Massive Nights celebration. It's the first night. We'll be looking back at Massive Nights over the years, as well as looking ahead to the exciting 2023 edition, uh, which also celebrates the band's 20th anniversary. We're calling that evening First Night. It'll take place at the White Hotel. We'll have some cool guests. Peter, uh, Peter Shapiro, the owner of the Brooklyn Bowl, Super promoter has had his hands in a great many awesome shows over the years. Also, our other guest, Michael Han, who wrote the book, The Gospel of the Hold Steady, which came out this year. Talk to him about the book as well as other stuff. And of course, the other members of the Hold Steady will be there too to share their memories of Massive Nights past and look ahead to the future in this one in 2023. We're going to predict, make some predictions. It'll maybe be like a Super Bowl pregame show but for Massive Nights. It's going to be awesome. Go to theholdsteady.net for more details there. March 2nd, 2024, I'll be in London in the UK. We'll be wrapping up a solo tour that night at the Moth Club in London. That afternoon at 3 p.m., we'll be doing a live version of this podcast. We'll have some exciting special guests. Just about ready to announce some of those, but um, we'll keep you waiting for a touch longer. Get the tickets now, though. The February tour in the UK and Ireland is seeing some shows sell out you want to get on that if you want to be a part of it and I think you should these shows are going to be really special craigfin.net for more info there thanks again to Peter Jesperson for joining us and being awesome a huge thanks to you for listening please consider subscribing if you haven't already and please keep listening to us here we've got some amazing guests coming right up thanks for being a part of it 
I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it.